So good evening. I'm Graham Allison, the director of the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs. And let me welcome you to what promises to be a great uh, opportunity to explore uh, an amazing topic with an even more amazing uh, panel. So we're celebrating the publication of a report from the Belfer Center by David Petraeus and Paris Bayani called The Next Great Emerging Market, Capitalizing on North America's Four Interlocking Revolutions. This is a project David has been uh, pursuing here at Harvard over the last several years. And it's come to fruition. You can find it on the Belfer Center website or in the program you'll get some clues to it. But tonight we're going to take some of the tips of the iceberg. So these four, uh, uh, or these th three members of the panel, hardly need an introduction and you have your program. Uh, we'd say about uh, David, who's the principal author of the report, that we're very proud that he's counted as a senior fellow here at the Belfer Center, where he's been for the past three years. Uh, he's for most of us, and me in particular, a great American hero. He's the most successful modern American general. And uh, he's now putting his, put, puts some part of his mind into broader public policy issues where over the course of a, of a great career in government and now after government, he's shown a special, I would say uh, from my perspective, insight into the intersections of of issues and public policy choices, of which, is, of which you could hardly have a better set than the one we're dealing with tonight. So his co-author in this report, who started as the research assistant on it, is a great example of Harvard students. Since he graduated from the business school just in June, he worked with David on this report over the past year. And Paris Bayani is now a consultant, but he uh, did such good work on the report that David said, how about we make him a co-author? And I said, well, you're the author, your choice, and he did. So this is a high standard to which other Kennedy School students can aspire as they work with other senior fellows or faculty. It, it helps that they're the former managing editor of the Harvard Crimson, so no, he, he, he has he has many He has many skills. Uh, and uh, last and certainly not least is our colleague and friend, Susan Hockfield. Susan is a great leader of an educational institution. I can't remember the name of it, but it's not, <laughs> very, not, not very far down the, down the river. Just three letters, uh, very simple. And uh, uh, has been fascinated by the intersections of science and technology and the rest of society. And, among other things, gave here in this forum the Godhead Lectures last year, uh, helping us understand the convergence of the life sciences on the one hand and engineering on the other. And Susan has been a member with Megan O'Sullivan of the advisory committee of the project of which this is the product. So in any case, the way the game is going to go tonight, I'm going to uh, ask questions for the, la the first half hour or 45 minutes, 
that I think would engage us in a discussion, and the members of the panel obviously speak up about any point that you agree or disagree, and then we'll go to the audience for questions. So the topic of the report, as I said before, is capitalizing on North America's four interlocking revolutions. So David, if you were giving us your elevator speech version, sort of in brief for those who haven't had the opportunity to read it, what's the, what's the meat? Well, um, first of all, let me just uh, thank you for the kind words. Let me thank you for your polite, uh, unyielding persistence in nudging me along on this project for finding this great co-author. Um, and thanks for scheduling a forum session early in the semester uh, when people still have inquisitiveness and time on their hands before they get uh, into their semester papers and so forth. You know, I was a grad student and I experienced the same thing. Um, the bottom line here is best expressed, I think, by going back to a question I got in a conference in London about two years ago when I was asked, after the American century, what? And they expected, I think, that I would say, well, the Asian century or perhaps even the Chinese century. And instead, I said the North American decades. Now, it's decades, that's an S on the end, and it's North America, not just the United States of America, though the US is at the core of this. But it really comes down to fundamentals plus four revolutions, and then relative to what's going on in the rest of the world. Um, I do have you know, a day job. I'm the chairman of the KKR Global Institute. It's a global private uh, investment firm. And we look at these kinds of trends. And all the way back when I was the director of the CIA, we were trying to predict the price of Brent crude after the next round of Iranian oil sanctions, we saw the energy revolution. Uh, and it has had a transformative effect on energy markets. And despite a million barrels per day of Iranian oil coming off the market because of sanctions, despite another up to a million coming out because of Libyan uh, violence, prices have still gone down at the gas pump thanks to uh, the energy revolution in the United States, the so-called shale gale, uh, in the technologies that we invented for directional drilling, horizontal fracturing, and seismic big data that enable that. But beyond the energy revolution, you've got the IT revolution, which really has enabled the, the final stage of the energy revolution and enables everything else, uh, frankly, that is moving in the other two revolutions the manufacturing revolution, the advent of much, much greater automation and robotics uh, and also elements like three-dimensional printing, and then the life sciences revolution with stem cell technology, genetics, uh, so forth and so on. And again, big data playing a huge role in that as well. And you then combine that, you put that in the United States, uh, we're leading every one of these or among the leaders of every one in the sub-elements uh, as well. Uh, and you link us with the two countries who've been joined ever more integrated for 21 years now at the North American Free Trade Agreement to the point that a very modest sized neighbor to the north uh, is our number one trading partner, not the colossal China or even the third, fourth, or fifth largest economies. And then Mexico now is moving into second place in one category and third uh, in the other. So we have three highly integrated economies we have nearly 500 million people. We will in a few years. It's a very sizable market. We share uh, a belief in the values of free market economics and uh, democracy. 
Uh, you, we don't have historic ethnic or sectarian disputes as exist in so many other parts of the world. And uh, in fact, you don't see Mexico asking China to pivot to North America to offset uh, you know, US hegemony or something like that. So there are real fundamentals here. And you can get into macroeconomic fundamentals in a lot of ways and so forth. And when it's all compared, compared to what? Uh, compared to a slowing Chinese economy that we have seen coming for quite some time. Still gonna grow enormously, still gonna be a crucial part of the global economy, but is slowing and is gonna continue to slow as it makes this transition from low-cost labor provider to the world to a uh, domestic consumption and services economy. Uh, and then you look at the rest of the world, and frankly, it's very, very differentiated. Uh, the two economies are doing best of all of those, Germany and the UK, uh, in a Eurozone, not the UK, of course, but Germany uh, in the Eurozone, very, very differentiated. And it's very hard to find really bright, compelling spots elsewhere uh, in the world. And you come back to the United States, you just keep coming back. And I think it's accurate to say that rumors of our demise were greatly exaggerated. Good. By the way, one other data point. This year, for the first year in nine years, it appears that the United States will grow more in absolute dollar-denominated GDP than does China. That is a big deal because it means that the inevitability of these two, two uh, lines crossing, you know, coming soon to a theater near us is not quite coming so soon. So David, let me get you though to talk a little bit more about these four revolutions sure. and their interlocking. Because, the, as you said, the first is what we're accustomed to, the IT revolution, yep. the next generation of it, big data as an enabler. But the way in which that impacts uh, the life sciences, Susan's the topic of the mm -hmm. Godkin lecture, or the way in which the changes there, which are moving at a rate, perhaps twice the rate mm -hmm. of Moore's law, you look like, whoa, yep. okay. Then you look at what's happening in the energy space. That's now become well known. That wasn't well known when you started this study. No, no, okay. I mean, it started four years ago. And then the advanced ago. manufacturing component yep. is yet another yep. that's somewhat enabled by mm -hmm. the, so t tell us a little bit about the interlocking. Sure, let me do that, that briefly. If you look at advanced manufacturing, uh, let's just take robotics as one element of it, or three-dimensional printing as another. Uh, each of these involves huge software programs, enormous. Uh, and frankly, if you didn't have the scalable storage that's available now with uh, the cloud computing, if you didn't have the enormous computing power uh, also associated with that, uh, and although it's not uniform throughout the country, the broadband speed to enable you to to upload it, not just download, but, but the upload speed. If you didn't have all of these, and the, therefore the ability to share it with other people, all of whom are collaborating on this, you just could not do uh, what we intend to do and are doing now with robotics and indeed with this massively increased automation, uh, which is gradually going to replace humans doing repetitive tasks. It's already started. Uh, if you look at the life sciences, just take one area of that. In fact, I have a chair at the University of Southern California where I spend at least a week per semester. They are one of the great brain imaging centers in the entire world. 
And what has helped them achieve massive breakthroughs is just collecting more and more and more data on resections of brains uh, so that they now can dis discern patterns. So you can see, you know, tragically, those who have suffered true traumatic brain injuries, or by the way, in contact sports in many cases, you can absolutely now see the deterioration that has taken place, which also means that you can then try, at least try, to figure out how to use other elements of the life sciences revolution to either uh, halt that or perhaps even reverse it over time. And you know, Bob Belfer, uh, God bless him, his name is on the Belfer Center, was talking earlier about the concerns that he has about uh, the impact of Alzheimer's, just that disease alone on uh, healthcare costs. This is the kind of initiative that, that can help you at least come to grips with the, the disease and perhaps at some point figure out how to at least slow it or stop it or maybe even reverse it. So Susan, that's a pretty natural connection back to the Gottkin Lecture thesis, and, but let me push a little step beyond that. So if you wanna to go to the forum's website, they have all the forums that you can watch the videos of. There was a terrific forum here with Susan last year on the integration of the life sciences and synthetic biology on the one hand, and uh, engineering on the other. So one product of that might be uh, not only better diagnostics, but even more targeted medicines you talked about, and also maybe new organs, and then maybe new whatever new. So tell us a little bit about that piece of it, mm -hmm. and the public policies, because that's really the place where it intersects with the Kennedy School, the public policies that either impede or accelerate this. Yeah, yeah. so um, not to re-give the Gonkin lecture, although I'm sure each of you has another hour to spare this evening. Um, <laughs> go, uh, to, yeah. go to the video, it's <laughs> certainly worth it, absolutely. Uh, but Graham has highlighted what I think is gonna be um, one of the, if not the, technology story of the 21st century, and it's the convergence of biology with engineering. And there are any number of examples I could give. Um, the way I kind of frame it now is that looking at nine billion people on the planet by 2050, we've got some pretty serious issues to address. Our energy demands are gonna double. Um, we will be feeding people on roughly a half an acre per person, so understanding how to produce food at that kind of pace. Clean water, of course, uh, water, water everywhere, but darn it. It's got salt in it, so we can't drink it and we can't use it for irrigation, so figuring out how to desalinate water. And then, of course, the issues around healthcare are already uh, quite daunting. They will be even more daunting as hundreds of millions of people, we hope, come out of poverty. So many of the solutions are for, to these problems are gonna be geopolitical. Some of them are gonna be technological. And um, I see tremendous opportunities coming out of the convergence of engineering biology to address them. So I can give you fabulous examples from uh, new approaches to diagnosing and treating cancer, um, nanoparticles that carry uh, homing mechanisms that get them directly to a cancer cell, hidden from the body's defenses on their way, find the cancer cell, deliver the toxin that is specific for that cancer and not for the other cells in the body. Um, in water, one of the technologies I'm really excited about, um, desalinization has been an issue of, for um, chemical engineers by themselves clever filters that uh, remove the salt from water 
They're clever, but it's really expensive. It's really energy intensive. One of the themes of this convergence of biology and engineering is letting biology do the very hard work of figuring out how to do the task and just using it, not actually doing the hard work of figuring out gene by gene how we would engineer it. And uh, Peter Agre at Johns Hopkins discovered a channel called aquaporin that passes only water through the cell wall. There are a couple of companies now start up that use the aquaporin molecule to actually provide the filtration device for desalinization. Great example of the convergence of uh, engineering biology. So I think this is an exciting, um, booming area. It's not new. People were working in biomedical engineering or variants of this in the middle of the 20th century, but it has certainly gained steam, gained enthusiasm, really gained possibility with all of the kinds of uh, you know, IT benefits that uh, the general talked about and certainly um, sequencing benefits um, that are now in hand. But um, what's going to prevent us from actually deploying these new technologies? And policy is a very big piece of this. Um, Bob Solo, an MIT economist, won the Nobel Prize for demonstrating that half of the economic growth in the United States after World War II was attributed, attributed not to commodities, not to people, but to technology. So um, that was kind of the, you know, the first demonstration of the power of technology in driving economic growth. Um, you know, to me, it's second nature. It clearly is not second nature to all the people who are making the, the, uh, the budgeting allocations in Washington. American public does get this, but we've got a problem. So from a peak of federal investments in research and development in the mid-1960s, where we were investing about 2% of GDP, today we're down at about 0.8% of GDP. Now, if we look in aggregate about the amount of money as a nation we're spending on R&D, it's been roughly 3%. It's been pretty steady. And the drop in federal support has been covered by industrial support. It's fantastic. Fantastic, except that that changing of the proportion of support means that we're focusing more money on the development than on the early research. The blueprint for our innovation economy was actually put in place by Vandiver Bush, fabulous piece of work he wrote, uh, something called Science the Endless Frontier in response to FDR's question, how do we turn the technologies for war into technologies for peace? And in that, Bush says, you know, we had this well of discoveries that we deployed during the war into technologies that won the war, the bomb, radar, sonar, the foundations of GPS. You go through all the technology wonders that we enjoy today. Many of them have their foundations in World War II investments for war. So we effectively did that. But Vandiver Bush said, that well of discoveries, we have plumbed and it's dry and we need to refill it and we need to refill it perpetually. So when we get research uh, funding that uh, reduces the early stage research and emphasizes the deployment of the research discoveries into technologies for the marketplace. That's great getting these technologies in the marketplace, but we're draining the well, we're emptying the well, and we've gotta be sure that our federal policies support that. Another piece of making sure this whole system works, making sure we have a robust system of education that gives opportunity to all the young people in America, not just those who can afford a better education. And these are, again, public policies that if we don't get them right, uh, we are going to be robbing from our children's and grandchildren's opportunities. So, Paris, that probably takes it to you for a second and then maybe back to David. In the uh, handout here, you've got 10 
sensible policy recommendations. The question, if do we have a sensible policy maker that might do one of these? And if you were picking one or two or three that look most plausible, because this is to, to help us understand, it's, it's great and I think fantastic to have a list of things that we should do if we were sane and sensible. But suppose we're just the good old USA doing <laughs> more or less like what we're doing now. Sure. Talk about the obstacles as well as the opportunities. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So the, the list, is, there's 10 pieces to it, and it's sort of divided into three buckets. One of which, as, as Dr. Oxfield mentioned, is the human capital piece. So we talk about reforms to K-12 education, higher education, reforms to the immigration system, things like that. Um, the second bucket is the innovation agenda also. Dr. Oxfield mentioned funding for federal R&D. Uh, you know, Vannevar Bush's uh, current uh, organization of his vision, the National Science Foundation, uh, NIH funding, patent reforms, uh, that whole kind of set of recommendations. And then the third set is around physical infrastructure and digital infrastructure. We talk about uh, motor fuel tax increases to pay for refurbishment, uh, improvements to digital infrastructure, and uh, some focus on cybersecurity as well. Um, to you know, Professor Allison's question, which is, first, I guess, among these, what would you prioritize? And then second, how would we actually go about attacking some of these given the current political climate? Um, I would say, I guess, two things to this. I, I, would, I would take the human capital pieces, particularly the non-immigration parts, and elevate those to the top. Um, we, we were talking a little bit earlier about, um, about some work that was done by the Harvard Economics faculty, by professors Katz and Golden, about the, the role that education, particularly K through 12, and basic higher education played in both the innovation, the innovativeness of the US economy in the early part of the 20th century, early and mid, as well as the compression in wages and the growth of the middle class. Um, and, I, and, I, and I would say that um, focusing on the K to 12 will not only have that impact again, but it's also something that by definition, requires the least federal involvement. In fact, there's not even a great way for the federal government to get involved in K-12 education. Um, the Federal uh, Department of Education, for example, is prohibited from uh, writing national curriculum guidelines. Only about 11% of federal, of total education funding, funding comes from the federal government. Um, so if you're looking to the states and the cities, which is where I see you know, more movement on any of these things, for example, you know, motor fuels tax or other areas, um, K-12 education is really an area where states and cities can move ahead, uh, and, and I think you've seen that. You've seen that in states like Massachusetts, which was a middle performer in 1993 when the Education Reform Act was passed and is now, uh, you know, by most measures, the, the leading performer in the country. Um, and, and I think there's enough proven sort of policies at the state level and at the local level that you could, you could actually see some real movement there, regardless of Congress and, and, and what the federal government's doing. Were, were you working, when you were working for Rahm Emanuel, yes. was, were you out there when he was doing the education work? Um, I, 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 I taught high school in Chicago, uh, and then I, when I was working directly for the administration, I was actually on the infrastructure side. But certainly the whole debate around very education. sensible ideas on education, which of course were difficult, but I think sure. he has actually pressed through and gotten them, gotten them largely through. Right. The and the idea that the reason we're behind, say, Asian students and test scores is that by the time you take the test score, Asian students have actually gone to school a year longer because they have longer school days and longer school years. Right. And I think he's made progress on that. Yeah, I mean, so th that's, a, I think, a great example of, of, 
a, a city being able to extend the school yeah. day upwards of 30%. And so, I mean, that's a sort of a big bang solution. Chicago, of course, was starting from a relatively low base in terms of the number of minutes in the day. But those are the sorts of things I think you can see cities do, absolutely. So da David, as you, uh, you've struggled with many intractable problems over the course of your career, where we're losing in Iraq and all of a sudden you go there and we have a surge of both troops, but as you say, even more importantly, ideas. And lo and behold, something turns out different than you would have otherwise bet. Certainly that I was, that I was betting. Or you've been to Afghanistan, or you've been to Sintcom. So if, if, you, if you think about the, on the one hand, how easy it is looking at Washington today yeah. to think, yep. this is a dysfunctional capital. I wrote a piece recently, said DC is rapidly becoming <laughs> an acronym for dysfunctional capital. So I look at that and I think it's easy to have a good idea of what to do. It's hard to get it to be done. So give a, use your imagination and tell us for one or two or several, how would you think about actually getting it, getting it done? I, I actually think that probably each of them, you have to focus on individual ideas. You have to find individual champions on Capitol Hill. Um, we are at literally working our way through now each of the, actually let me back up and talk about yeah. the idea of what we call policy and legislative headwinds. So I hope we've convinced you reasonably that there is this extraordinary opportunity for the United States and indeed for North America, uh, founded again on a lot of fundamentals uh, compared to the rest of the world, but then founded on four incredible revolutions, uh, again, which we are largely leading uh, in that world. So you have this tremendous opportunity, and the question is, what is keeping us from capitalizing fully on that, that opportunity? And essentially, it's the issues that we have here, uh, where we actually uh, provide prescriptions. Uh, it's to deal with one of these legislative or policy headwinds. So it is education reform. If we don't reform education, if we don't prepare the workforce for future needs, uh, and help those that are in the current mm -hmm. economy whose jobs may go away because of robotics, uh, we'll have a very different country. We won't have made the most of the opportunity. Uh, immigration reform is a wonderful example. You know, we educate the best and brightest of the world, we subsidize it in most cases, and then we tell half of them when they apply for an H-1B visa that they can't stay in our country because they didn't win the lottery. I mean, it's, it's a really insane policy by the way, Canada will take all of them. And when I did another task force on North America for the Council on Foreign Relations, we were up there and there are big billboards that say, can't get a US visa? You know, come, come to Canada, we'll take you. So these are all issues that prevent you from capitalizing fully on this extraordinary opportunity. And we've got to, we've got to work our way through those. So what we're actually doing now, just to take this to the next step, uh, is to look at each of these different issue areas and in more depth provide uh, some rationale for it. So again, comprehensive immigration reform, not just the smart folks, but also unskilled workers. I mean, there are crops that have literally rotted in the fields of certain states in the past two years because they couldn't get enough unskilled workers because there wasn't a legal pathway uh, for them to do that. And again, we've got to come to grips with those kinds of issues as, as difficult as they are. But I think having you know, had some 
few and close encounters uh, with our uh, capital, the nation's capital, uh, and on Capitol Hill. Uh, I think that's the way that you have to go about it. I mean, you could also promote, for whatever it's worth, a grander scheme of doing away with gerrymandering in states, which I think has made the House of Representatives uh, more partisan than, than perhaps it otherwise would be, with red states, or red districts becoming bright red and blue districts becoming bright blue, and the center being much less than it was. Uh, Susan, let me get you to address this a little bit too, because certainly through your career, but over seven or eight <coughs> years as president of MIT, you must have served on 99 panels that <laughs> said it's crazy not to be investing in uh, seed corn research and development for the benefits. Look at Vannevar Bush. Right. So, uh, but I mean, I've, I think I've been part of panels on this for 20 years, and it seems like the we haven't moved the needle very much. So, wh wh what do you think? So, a, a great question, and it was uh, just the question on my mind for the for the general just now, which is that. Um, um, let me just turn into an anecdote, and then you'll understand. Which is that um, you know a lot of people, you know, say that you know it's online education. It's just great. It's going to transform education. And you know the problem is, for academically ambitious kids, they have gone after the resources wherever they've been. Walked to you know yeah. the library in the snow. I mean mm -hmm. you know up back and forth, uphill both ways. So, and the academically ambitious people around the world are picking up these online resources in ways that are just, I mean, it really, it brings tears to my eyes. It's so fantastic. Our country, our problem isn't that there aren't high quality academic resources. We've got an ambition deficit. And so the question is, you know, not, you know, how you, you know, make more things available, but how do we inspire our country around this issue? And um, I often joke, but you know, I grew up under the shadow of Sputnik. So when I was a kid, man, we had a problem and we were gonna solve it and we wanted you and you and you, you know, all of us, you know, we were gonna be part of the solution. It was a very exciting time to have an inclination towards science and math, which I had as a little kid, but it's this idea of an ambition. It's something that you're, you know better than any of us as yeah. a, a leader in um, our armed forces. Yeah. And one of my questions really is how can we inspire that kind of ambition in our country? How are we gonna, and it's not just simply we can be great again, we're gonna be number one again. What is our purpose? And one of the things I find so exciting about your North American decades idea is, you know, Canada, the United States, Mexico together represent a geopolitical footprint, geopolitical yep. force that we have not really plumbed very well. And how do we organize ourselves to, um, you know, in the cliche, make the world a better place. But, you know, how do we inspire our children? You know, the people of this country and the countries to our north and south to really kind of, you know, pull up your bootstraps and go after what is the thing we are trying to accomplish that, frankly, I think being able to articulate that would go a long way to uh, providing a counterforce for some of the forces of um, disruption that we see emerging around the world. I mean, it's a wonderful point, and I can answer it in terms of a military organization. You mm -hmm. literally, as a commander, you are trying to establish a certain culture. And, um, you know, when I've been privileged to be at the helm of an organization, 
we really did try to build a culture that, that was founded on a proposition that life is a competitive endeavor. Uh, and as one of my really profound infantry captains told me when I was a lieutenant colonel, he said, you know, sir, winners win stuff now and then. <laughs> and um, so we did actually try to win stuff. Now, by the way, sometimes you have to compete to be the best team player, not just the, mm -hmm. you know, the best overall. And you have to pick your moments uh, for that as well. But how do you build a culture, in this case, in a country, in a society, um, is not something that I've actually grappled with. But I guess that the principles are very similar. I mean, it has to start with some big ideas. A leader has to distill those big ideas. Um, I used to think there were five, by the way, in a particular unit that you could, that's about all you can handle. Doesn't mean you don't have others, but, but I used to counsel future battalion brigade division commanders to, no kidding, spend time figuring out what are the five areas of priority and how do you, what are the big ideas in each of those and then how do you operationalize those? So now truly, a, you know, you have to get programmatics and all the rest of that. And I'd like to think, for example, that if you went to, say, the infantry battalion that I was privileged to command in the great 101st Airborne Division, that if you asked a soldier now 20-some-odd years later, then, I, you know, what was Petraeus a nut about? They'd say, oh, my God, you know. Every time he talked to us, he always stressed, you know, this physical fitness, small unit live fire, tactics, techniques, and procedures, so realistic that, of course, I got shot in one of them. Um, Air assault tactics and techniques, um, discipline, and then ranger-related, uh, ranger course, really, because we had this thesis that if you got a certain number of non-commissioned officer rangers at a certain threshold, it just transforms the unit, which it does. 20 in a single infantry company is transformative. But they, I guarantee you they'd get at least four or five right 20-some-odd years later. You know, what are the big ideas for, gosh, you know, the United States. I mean, I could tell what they are for the Belfer Center, maybe even for the Kennedy School of Government, but that's a, I mean, to say that that's reasonably profound. But, uh, but you know, what's one. interesting. You one had of the it for MIT, sir. Yes, so I, mean, I, I and only our had son three. benefited from I got three. Yeah, yeah, three, no. three was with my, was the advice I was given. <laughs> three things say the same things again. Yep. Yeah, and, yep. and actually it was easy because yep. the ideas came from the community and was reflecting back, you know, the community's it's passion. It's only ambition. easy once you've distilled them. Yeah, that's true. But, but, you, but you know, easy, but one of the places where we see, so what, what is America, what is North America about? And I can tell you one of the great resources for us has been our immigrants. And sure. ma yep. many of us are mm -hmm. only a generation or two yep. from the people who came to the United States giving up everything they had. And they get it. Mm -hmm. And they understand it. And it's why they are driven so hard. It's why they study mm -hmm. so well. <laughs> it's why yep. they come to MIT to become the you know, engineers and scientists and, you mm -hmm. know, and leaders of the future. So um, we have just not done a very good job of articulating it for the people who have been dwelling here for a while. And um, I'm not sure, I have not really put my mind to the task of articulating what this North American force would be, yeah. what it would do for not just all of us, but what it would do for the world. I mean, part of the idea here, in all honesty, I mean, it didn't start out to be that way, but it's also, um, it gives you a degree of hope and optimism about the prospects for our great country. Mm -hmm. And really, again, it comes back to fundamentals. I mean, one of these is innovativeness is rewarded in the United States system. I mean, you can distill a whole bunch of these that were very fortunate in founding fathers or 
fortunate and you know the fact that there's oil and gas and shale and a whole but we're the ones that invented the technology to to unlock it so there's a lot of that and i maybe we honestly no kidding sit down and try to distill what are some really big ideas that make this place special a country north america and how do you how do you solidify those how do you capitalize on those as well so paris will give you a comment so here you graduate from harvard uh the college then you go off to what, teach for america yes that's right and you're teaching in Chicago, then you go to work. Program invented by a Princetonian, I think. Well, wasn't I it? think so. <laughs> Not I to get so. that in there, but. <laughs> we, we call it a small college to the south. Uh, yeah. but so, any so what do you say about this? Uh, about the sort of ambition? About this general topic, yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, I certainly take the, uh, the point, um, well, it is very hard, in, in my view, to, to replicate the kind, of, um, the kind of thing you had in the Cold War, where there was a very clear rallying point which was this sort of patriotic sense of, of mission to the country um, in the absence of something like the Soviet Union. And, and, I, and I think to General Petraeus' point, it's easier to do in organizations that have some you know, bound around them that's not an entire continent you know, or, or an entire country. So I think it's very, very hard to do um, in the absence of having something to define yourself against. Uh, and what, what I wonder, uh, with regard to you know, thinking of the revolutions in this context of something that people can sort of see some uh, you know, pride or affiliation as, as North Americans with. Um, and, and General Petraeus and I have talked about this, which is a lot of these revolutions really benefit um, folks who have education. They, they benefit the, the skilled workers. Um, and in the case of the Cold War, you had people like Dr. Hockfield and others who could engage at a scientific level and pursue graduate education in science and feel like they're contributing to their country, you had other people who could enlist in the army and at, at a much lower uh, level of skill and feel as though they were contributing. And I wonder when we think about you know, the agenda that people could really rally behind, uh, what's something that could appeal to, to everybody, not just you know, people who are gonna be able to take advantage of you know, scientific revolutions or, or uh, you know, changes in, in the way the economy is functioning. So, uh, we're soon to go to questions from the audience. There are two microphones on either side, and you should please line up. And there are two microphones in the loges. But since uh, uh, I see in the audience one of the members of the advisory committee that produced this project, Professor Megan O'Sullivan, maybe you want to go over there and make a comment or ask a question? No, since I think it's nice to see how people that were part of the product Produce the product, so please. Harvard's energy expert, among them. Among other things. Yeah. Among other things, that's right. First, I just want to thank you again for this great product and for the inspiration that it gives us all, particularly here at a school of public policy. And I wanted to ask about something that we spoke about a little bit earlier today, and that is your, your project has a lot of focus on energy, and energy is a driver of integration in North America. And I'm wondering where you see the issue of climate um, focusing in on that piece. Is it something that you think can help bring those three countries together? Is it something that works against the energy revolution? Or is it something that can benefit from the technological advances that you identify? Um, look, I think it's one that can bring the countries together. I'd like to think it is bringing the countries together. And, um, we, there's another project I was involved in as a co-chairman of the Council on Foreign Relations Task Force on North America, 
By the way, there's a lot of these North American revolving themes. I teach a course at the Honors College of the City University of New York called The Coming North American Decades. And it didn't appear quite so crystal clear when it was conceived in the three amigos here at Harvard that Graham loaned me to help to build this course, uh, did it three so years ago. But it really has solidified during that time. But when it comes to the issues of climate, first of all, we did put a very brief mention in here about something that we think is needed nationally, and that is essentially minimums uh, for certain issues connected with fracking in particular, but just any energy extraction, production. Uh, when it comes to uh, areas that can affect more than one state, uh, so if you think about the methane gas discharge issue connected with hydraulic fracturing and really the whole value chain uh, for delivery, um, when you think about groundwater, uh, the, the water that comes back, the fracking fluid, and making sure that it doesn't uh, contaminate groundwater that flows throughout a, a whole uh, ecosystem, those kinds of issues we think actually need to be addressed while leaving certainly to the states those that are truly just the province uh, of a particular state. But in that other project that we did for the Council on Foreign Relations, we talked quite extensively about certain issues that uh, need to be addressed across boundaries. When you get into the issues of water that President Hockfield was talking about, I mean, these are going to become more, we already see it in certain parts of our country, obviously, and we saw it even before the historic drought that is now uh, really into several years in, into the West, where you have uh, rivers and aquifers and so forth that go across borders. You've really got to have some rules and regulations and agreements on how you're going to exploit those. And th that's just one of a number of different examples uh, that I think are the province of the continent, not just of the United States, although we've got to get our own uh, big ideas right, and then we ought to get them imp implemented in our own country. Susan, do you want to say a quick word on that? Yeah, so um, I perhaps somewhat naively um, have dreamed that this issue around energy could be the rallying ambition, obviously not just for our country, but for uh, for our, uh, the, the North American decades. Yep. Um, is there any way that we can get beyond the political battling uh, to come together around a uh, new energy plan for the country, or is it just too politically charged I, at this point? To I do think that? it's very charged. I, I actually think that what's happening, you know, sometimes there's a saying that policy isn't made, it accumulates. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've been the recipient at various times in government life of to implement policies that had accumulated. Mm -hmm. um, I think actually that there is an energy policy in the US that is accumulated, and Megan would be even more expert on this, frankly. Mm -hmm. But as you look at each of the incremental decisions that has been made by particularly the EPA, but also by the other elements of the Department of Energy, um, you gradually see an energy policy emerging. I mean, we're not going to get this term in Congress, I don't think, crude oil exports allowed, but we are already swapping our crude for Mexican crude. And you know, you, you're getting these incremental areas of progress 
there is a lot of criticism that we're not exploiting the ability to export our bountiful natural gas, which is the lowest cost in the entire world and an insurmountable uh, comparative advantage for us in certain industries. But by golly, there's, I forget how many LNG plants have now been approved all the way through the process, and now construction is ongoing for these LNG plants, which four or five years ago, they're, they're on sites in some cases that four or five years ago, there were going to be gasification plants because we thought we were going to be importing, not exporting, which shows you how dramatic the energy revolution has been in that space. So that's policy accretion, but I'm thinking about a national ambition that uh, you know looks out a couple of decades yep. and says we're going to transition from uh, dominance in fossil fuels where we now are, I would say that's sure. a good thing, yep. to um, dominance, you know, dominance and alternative yep. through having yep. batteries that can really, yes. um, yep. you know, energy yep. storage that can sustain a, yep. uh, a non-fossil fuel-based uh, energy ecosystem. I think there actually are elements of that as well. I think if you look at the, the, the some of these are more than incremental. Some of these are pretty big decisions on uh, goals for certain types of efficiency, um, and these are driving, certainly as are the uh, subsidies in some cases or tax breaks or whatever that give incentives uh, for renewables, even though they're not yet completely competitive head up uh, with, especially now since the energy revolution with fossil fuels. Well, Paris, so, you, you know, can you say there should be an overarching one? I'd love to see it, but it's interesting that this is actually emerging uh, and it's in a reasonably coherent fashion, I think. I don't know if Megan will give a head nod to that or not, but <laughs> uh, sort of a... <laughs> which way is a head nod? The optimist in me control. Right. The, the one point I would, I would add to that, that last piece, I think a lot of those technologies are largely an American story. The, mm -hmm. the, certainly the battery storage and a lot of the renewable yep. development you see here. Meg, uh, Professor Ellison, for your question about integration, the one thing I think that we flagged um, as an area for, for real growth that you could see is uh, Canadian and American sharing, particularly around hydropower, um, which currently is about 1% of US yeah. grid electricity. Uh, there's a lot of efforts, particularly in New York and, and New England, uh, to see that uh, grow substantially. There's actually but a lot of southern, uh, across the southern border, too. I mean, too. we have right. much lower cost electricity than does Mexico. So right. if uh, we were not doing this by stealth, you know, could this not become a national ambition of the sort that the race to the moon became that could motivate? Uh, there's the next task force. Okay. <laughs> The, this gentleman, please introduce yourself and a short question. Hi, my name is Ben, and I'm a Harvard alum. Uh, my question is for President Hockfield and General Petraeus. Um, clearly, um, patent law and the protection of intellectual property is very important, both domestically for encouraging the private sector to be an innovator, but also in the global context. So when we talk about these four areas and the topic of innovation, what changes need to be made in intellectual property, both domestically and abroad to encourage further private sector innovation. Let me take the first one and I'll then toss it back to President Hockfield. I mean, what I would focus on actually more than patent law in terms of safeguarding our intellectual property uh, is coming to grips with the issue of cyber theft. Uh, obviously the focus is on China in part just because President Xi has also come to the States, but you know, it's estimated that, that China has stolen a, a trillion dollars worth of intellectual property over the last decade or so in an effort that is publicly known now, what was privately known to some of us, uh, that this is an organized effort that is done by their version of NSA uh, on steroids 
and it is directed and focused on areas that will most support certain elements of the economy uh, in which decisions have been made to really make a push. Uh, so we have got to come to grips with that. I think the administration is, is coming soon to a theater near us with what will be the beginnings of, again, incremental steps. There will be sanctions probably after the visit is complete. But uh, this is such, this is not just good old run-of-the-mill espionage, um, stealing military secrets or, you know, that's all fair, I guess, but this is way, way beyond that. And it has such a profound effect um, given the competitive nature of some of these different industries. So that's the one where I would focus. By the way, one of the issues that we say has to be dealt with is also cybersecurity legislation. That legislation is necessary because without it, you're just not going to get the kind of sharing between the experts in government and those in the business world that need that expertise, but without certain safeguards and underpinnings, uh, in some cases guarantees, uh, that you'll help them if they get in a tough spot and um, suffer real economic reverses as a result of it, as a result of going public and sharing what they've had. Yeah, so I, I have only a little to add. I just want to commend you for the, um, kind of the background of your question, which is understanding the importance of intellectual property protection yeah. and patent law. It's absolutely critical for people to prosecute these really you know, great new ideas and turn them into the marketplace. And um, as much as we can, it's a slow process, but reconciling our patent protection with those in the countries that at least agree with us that we need to have them um, is uh, important, and we're making steps in that direction. The gentleman in the lodge. Hello, uh, my name is Lil Goshu. I am an MPP alum from last year. Um, so thank you uh, so much for this great document. It's a great vision, um, and it you put a lot of hard work into it. Um, so I just have a question. Um, so I'm an American taxpayer, but I'm not a part of the military infrastructure, so I'm not necessarily aware of how our tax dollars are being used to, for American defense. Um, and so what's frustrating to me is um, in your document, you say that the two largest drivers of spending is Social Security and Medicaid, there's a lot of myths behind you know, how much money goes into military spending. So my question for you is, do you foresee a decrease in military spending in your vision? And if you, and if you when you do, um, could you quantify it? Good question, David? Yeah, I can't, certainly can't quantify it. I, in truth, didn't, didn't envision a reduction. Um, you know, the fact is that our tax base is increasing, our GDP is increasing, and candidly, the uh, situation in the world has not gone in a heartening direction in, in recent years. In fact, if anything, over the last, since sequestration in particular was envisioned, and of course it was supposed to be so horrible that they'd look into the abyss and draw back and come, would all come to our senses and agree to a reasonable way forward. Um, sequestration is still looming out there. It's a particularly uh, bad way to cut deficits. Um, so I, I actually think that we've gone too far, in fact, with cuts in defense spending. Uh, we especially have if we're going to have sequestration. And again, it's just that's a nonsensical way of making cuts, not just in defense, but in anywhere else. To give you an example, when I was the director of the CIA and we looked at sequestration just briefly because we thought surely no one will ever do this silly notion. Um, we not only are you told to take a cut, in our case, I think it was somewhere around a 9% cut. That's a very substantial cut. It is, yeah. Unexpected in the middle of the year. But you're also supposed to, they tell you how to take it. 
Um, so we had to take it, let's say 50, just hypothetically 50 different program areas, you have to take the same amount in each one of those. So you don't have the authority to say, not saying that we were gonna do a moonshot in the CIA, but let's say you had the equivalent of a moonshot, really expensive, perhaps high return, worth doing, but if you compare that with investing in your human capital, which is still the core essence of what makes that place so great and special, you'd say, well, let's delay the moonshot for a year to get through sequestration and we'll keep investing in all this other stuff. No, nope, can't do that. So again, we not only have to, to come to grips with spending, we have to do it in a s rational way rather than a way that is a real meat cleaver So approach. your book will acknowledge, hopefully your book will mention that? I mean, we you know there is a bigger report. I don't know. It's that's published, and there's actually some other versions of this. Here's out a there copy as well, of the report, so, yep. and you can get it on the Belfort Center Thank website. You. Just go. But, but you're right that we have. It's a once over lightly on that particular. Okay. By, by, com, by what would need to be done. Yep. Hi, my name is Andrew Kingsbury. I'm an Extension School student. Um, my question is for the general. Uh, first, thank you for your service, your career. I was looking at a photo earlier today. It uh, had all your service ribbons on, your class A's and everything. It's almost going over your shoulder. So that was pretty cool. Um, but my question is regarding your story about the Rangers, uh, the one with the 101st. Um, you uh, said there was like a key, uh, kind of like a key ratio uh, in order for them to yeah. kind of become role models and, and leaders and everything like that. So that's like my first half of the question. Uh, and uh, how did the leadership uh, like, uh, the officers like yourself inspire the NCOs to become Rangers uh, if that was part of like your program? Well, there always are incentives and you know, incentives include everything from uh, recognition, which is a big, big deal, uh, and constantly emphasizing and putting those who achieve something in lights and pinning medals on them and getting stories. I mean, we worked this every way we possibly could um, and so for every one of these areas that we had emphasis, you told about what, this is what excellence is. This is what we'll do to try to get to excellence. This is what you get if you get excellence. Uh, here's how we're gonna facilitate it. So we, we actually ran in a single infantry battalion our own pre-ranger course, which no one else in the entire division did. We ultimately ended up at the end of two years uh, that I was privileged to command the organization with more enlisted rangers. It's really about the enlisted and the non-commissioned officer rangers, because most of the officers are ranger qualified in all the battalions in an organization like that. But we ended up with more enlisted rangers in that single battalion than any other grouping, any other brigade of, of three plus battalions had in it, just because of the sheer emphasis on this. And because of the effort, I mean, you, this is a, it's always a comprehensive approach. I mean, there's even someone that was sitting at the school's allocation office the moment it opened each month when they opened up, and we would sign up for every slot. Um, and then we'd, we'd bet that we're gonna fill them, and we did. Uh, and so it, you really have to push it, but it has to be something that you are fully invested in yourself um, and I, I could list the, the number of techniques that we employed to really, really achieve this goal. Was there like a key ratio or like percentage, I guess? There was. 20, if you hit a threshold of 20, by the way, then, then the company commander got an Army, Army Commendation Medal and his first sergeant did. So again, there was a whole series of these. 
If you've got 20 enlisted rangers in a company, for some reason it just transformed the unit. How the large company is The company is about 130 to 150 okay. men in those days, all uh, infantry units. And there was just something special about it. And we ended up having the highest number of enlisted rangers in the entire US Army in a single battalion outside of the three actual ranger battalions in the ranger regiment. Thank you. This gentleman, please. Hi, my name is Gavin Reynolds. I'm a freshman at Harvard College. Uh, thank you all for being here. President Hockfield, you mentioned uh, immigration reform a bit there. Uh, I'm the son of Jamaican immigrants. So I was just wondering, could you guys talk a little bit about how you think potentially the future of immigration reform could uh, play a part in allowing Washington to capitalize on our tech revolutions uh, since it would allow more students from more countries to come here not only to study but then afterward to uh, work here? Well, there are three broad categories, I think, that you have to look at. One is the very highly educated uh, individuals that come to the United States and in most cases want to stay in the United States if they can. And the irony is that we generally subsidize a good proportion of those and then we don't have a real guarantee of a visa for them. It, there's a terrific example. I was in India a couple of months ago and the, the number one startup in India uh, is done by an individual that's now got three billion in revenue just in its second year, third year. So I said, tell me about yourself. And he was about you know, 27 years old. And he said, well, I went to school, I did Wharton at, at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, I had a startup there and then I went out and I was working for Microsoft. Um, and you know, I had this IT skill and all this stuff and then I was deported. Really? And he said, so I had to go to India, so you know, I dreamed up this little startup and we now have three billion in revenue. So perfect example of what we should not do. Uh, and the bottom line is that we typically have twice as many applicants for the H-1B, the smart pe people's visa, uh, as we uh, have with visas that we actually allow. The other end is again the unskilled, essentially, or very low skilled workers that we really need in certain sectors of the economy, agriculture being among them. And again, we really don't have a, a very good legal pathway to really speed that process, particularly for certain harvest seasons and, and everything else. So that's the other one. And then you have to address the issue of those who are here illegally, essentially, un, uh, and that's as many as over 10 million people, certainly the majority of which are tax-paying uh, contributors to our society with jobs and all the rest of that. And again, we've got to have a, a pathway to uh, citizenship for them as well, not one that rewards them necessarily in a particular way for having done something that is illegal, uh, but nonetheless, you have to have a pathway for them also. And, th and we, that, this is one that we actually have thought through uh, to some degree. It has actually been proposed. Uh, the number of senators were behind this, uh, some quite courageously from, from their parties. And then unfortunately, it just lost the airspeed and altitude and didn't get across the finish line. Yeah, I, I don't know what the political solution is, but um, from my own view, uh, the need to get a solution becomes more pressing uh, almost monthly. So our immigration policies now are very little for, different from what they were like 25 years ago. And from you know where I sit, um, you know, the um, you know, people who come to this country get educated. Their number one choice 
25 years ago for most of them was to stay in the United States. Number two choice was a really distant second, but you know, if they couldn't stay, they might go, but they could fought like heck to stay. The situation has changed. We've got some incredibly great competition in other countries and you know, so uh, you don't get your number one choice, easy enough to go to your number two choice. There are a lot of great places to be an innovator, an entrepreneur, and um, the United States is just losing a tremendous uh, resource in not making it possible for uh, the high-end uh, immigrants to stay, and I'm, in my view, making a huge mistake in not making a, having a path for the uh, unskilled workers to come because, you know, um, I see the uh, sons and daughters of those people at MIT every year, and they are amazing people, I'm sure, like yourself, and uh, we need a path for them to come to the United States as well. But yeah. politically, yeah. It's, um, uh, there is not an easy political solution. Yeah. You know, you. Again, demographics are one of those real fundamentals in, that you just can't outrun. And Japan is trying to figure its way out through that now, but you know they're in a situation where the 130 million people population, uh, within a few years, decades certainly, they'll be losing one million people per year out of their population because of the de decline in their demographics unless they figure out some way to come to grips with that. And the bottom line is if you're population, really your workforce. If your workforce is going like this and productivity is not going like that, GDP is going to follow the demographic uh, trend. There are a lot of countries uh, that are in a serious situation. China actually is losing four to five million people a year out of its workforce because of the effects of the one-child policy, which have been tweaked but not really reversed at all yet. Uh, many European countries, at least until the refugee crisis, there is, a, there is some benefit to this refugee crisis for th those European countries that uh, allow these people to settle there and then can obviously integrate them successfully into the society. But otherwise, they've got a dem demography by and large that's going like that as well. This gentleman, please. Hi, uh, Mark Slamiani. I'm a mid-career student at the Kennedy School. Um, my question to the panel is uh, reference to risk and reward and innovation. Particularly, uh, you know, government funds very risky innovation that the private sector would not conduct, and yet uh, many of the returns are privatized. Um, this is kind of a major thesis in the work by uh, sure. Mariana Mazzucato in the entrepreneurial state about the privatization yep. of whether it's Apple, whether it's uh, um, uh, private equity and venture capital in some regards. How do we develop mechanisms that uh, return some of that profit back into innovation? You know, I, interestingly, I think, and I actually am a part-time venture capitalist now too, thanks to what I do in New York, and I actually think there is a ton of money out there. There's staggering amounts of money that are looking to invest in promising uh, startups. And it's not, and, and certainly some of those are coming from stuff that's thrown over the transom from DARPA and IARPA and NQTEL. You know, there's actually a venture, nonprofit, independent venture capital organization called NQTEL, which gets appropriated funds publicly known from the CIA, modest amount every year, and has invested those so incredibly well, including the first million in Palantir, which is now a, I don't know, 15 to $20 billion company. Uh, that they have enabled a great deal uh, of this also. So I, I don't know if that's the, how you turn that back to the government in a sense. 
I, I would think there are ways to do that. I can tell you that at USC, where I, I do some time each semester as well, that USC, and we've been working on this, and I actually review now eight startups per uh, semester when I'm out there, and this time I'm gonna bring USC alumni venture capitalists with me, and we're gonna turn it into a shark tank and right on the spot commit to supporting or not to support. But USC gets 5% uh, of every startup that they help launch because of their incubator that we built over the last few years out there. It's very exciting stuff. Um, so I don't know if that's the root of, I, there should be a way though of, I mean, you know, I don't know what DARPA got for creating the internet <laughs> or what uh, the CIA got for creating what ultimately was Google Earth. Um, but a lot of these have had their start there. So that's a, it's an interesting question. You want to yeah. try it, Paris? Yeah, I think um, what you hit on there is that it's a lot easier for universities and the intermediary to take equity in the eventual organization than it's going to be for the original funder, the U.S. government. And I think after you, you, you know, 1980 when Baidol is passed, and you, you actually do see a dramatic increase as a result of tech transfer in you know, development and, and things actually getting to market. And I think there are things you can do at the university level, taking equity and taking shares uh, of companies. Personally, I'm skeptical that it's a good idea to allow um, you know, the National Science Foundation. Susan, you lived in Tell us about that. I'm afraid you lived in the middle of that. called yeah, MIT. Yeah. So, so and you also have labs like Lincoln. Yeah, and that, so uh, for my earlier comments, uh, the, the funding of early stage research before you have any idea where the heck it's going to turn out up, that is the province of the government, and it's something the United States has done very well. We backed off from it uh, just at the time when there's more opportunity, and again, this is another place where there's a lot of competition. I can give you the numbers. There are a lot of countries around the world that are accelerating their investments. The United States, Canada are backing off on those investments. But um, one of the things that I worry about in this space, and you know, I am a fan of our model of uh, people investing, there's a lot of money out there to be invested. Right now, my big concern about this money out there to be invested is that our policies encourage short-termism. And so if you can, you know, equal tax benefit if you invest for 13 months or invest for 13 years, um, it doesn't take an economist to tell you, you know, where you're going to be putting your money and making it from. So one of my concerns about economic growth in the United States is uh, policies and practices that are discouraging uh, for people to put their money into long cycle capital intensive businesses. At MIT we spend a lot of, spin out a lot of companies that make stuff, not um, social media. We, there are companies that spin out and do social media also, but there are just a lot of companies that make big stuff. And when I was co-chairing the Advanced Manufacturing Partnership uh, with uh, Andrew Liveris for the White House, we did a session with um, entrepreneurs, manufacturing entrepreneurs. I love these people. I mean, how audacious is it to think you can go out and you know, make cars in a different way or frankly make batteries in a different way? And they have a really hard time, long cycle, capital intensive, to build a manufacturing plant. Easy to do the startup phase. So when we talk to MIT alumni about how they start their companies, the startup phase is very fundable. But the scale-up phase is just really hard. And so there are powerful economic disincentives in our country today from actually funding uh, the future of manufacturing. And that's one of my big concerns. It's not that the, there isn't money around. There aren't people interested yeah. in uh, getting involved in the hurly-burly of, uh, of innovation and entrepreneurship. 
it's that second stage that you really have to develop. And it's not a surprise that you know a lot of the companies, when they get to scale up, um, are moving offshore. And so that's something that really does concern me about whether we're funding companies to stay in place, build manufacturing. There yeah. aren't going to be as many manufacturing jobs tomorrow as there were 25 years ago, but there are going to be jobs. Um, but there aren't going to be jobs if we don't have the industry developing here. Andy Grove, who founded uh, Intel, Intel, Intel uh, has said often that if he were doing it again today, he would start it up in California and he would scale it up in China. Yeah, he'd have to. Please. Yeah. Hi, my name is Charlie and I'm a senior at the college. Uh, my question is for Paris, who, by Are the way. Are you really in Harvard ROTC? I am, sir. One of Good. the few. Good for you. She's the Army ROTC, She's the sir. Um, my question is for, for Paris, who, by the way, is a really exceptional TF, if you ever have the opportunity <laughs> to go um, as your teacher. Um, so last semester in economics, we talked a lot about American debt and the debt-to-GDP ratio as being something that could potentially tie the hands of America going into the future as it continues to rise. So my question is two parts. The first is, do you think that our debt could hamper our ability to capitalize on America's four tech revolutions? And second, do you think that if we were to capitalize on these tech revolutions, it would potentially raise our GDP enough or increase our tax revenue enough to lower our debt to GDP ratio in a substantial way? Uh, yeah, and great questions. I think the answer to both <laughs> is, is yes. And, and I think that's why if you look at the, the set of recommendations that we laid out, there's both reforms to the primary drivers of spending, entitlement programs namely. Um, and, and there's a question earlier about defense. Defense is large, but if you look at what's the drivers of, of the deficits in the out years, going out to 2030, it's primarily the, the federal entitlement program. So we called for reforms to those, but I think you're, you're right with your second question, which is the faster way to reduce the debt to GDP ratio and to stabilize it ultimately isn't necessarily just to rein in federal spending, uh, though that's a part of it. It's really to get GDP moving, as we were talking about earlier, sort of right. away from the 2% that we've seen for the past decade roughly and, and trying to get back to sort of the long run um, equilibrium of 3%, which you know, may not be the long-run equilibrium anymore. And I think the, the tech revolutions are a very important part of that. Yeah, so can I just agree emphatically? Let's focus on economic growth. And you know, we may, we've got to trim, but we've got to figure out what our policies are that are going to drive economic growth big time. This gentleman, please. Hi. Hi, my name is Weber, and I'm a first-year student at the business school. And the question is uh, actually to all four of you, which is, uh, if you look at Asia as such, the post-internet generation, which is called the Generation Z, is now coming up in the market, and that's the first generation which is kind of, will be growing up with the internet rather than having adapted to it. And till now, most of the consumer internet uh, startups in Asia have been, to borrow Peter Thiel's language, one-to-end kind of startups, so you have relatively very few original ideas or zero-to-end kind of uh, startups happening there, and that's a market which is still very U.S. dominated. Do you see that changing in the next decade or two decades? And what can the U.S. do for that uh, to still, um, for original ideas to still come up here, uh, at least for the majority of them? Thank you. That's, that's a, a wonderful question, actually, and I'm thinking it through as and actually thinking of some of the startups that have really taken off, and, and you actually have captured it, that a lot of them are, uh, so what did Jack Ma do? He did what Amazon has done, um, arguably. Um, 
but I, I don't know that that's necessarily wrong. I, I, you know, I don't, I don't think it was an intellectual property issue. I mean, you just took a big idea, but you've got a society of consumers that is growing, growing, growing. So even though China's slowing down, it's gonna have the biggest middle class ultimately, presumably, uh, in the world. And there is a growing desire to buy a whole bunch of things that would be attractive in that regard. So you have to look differently when you're investing in China. And the, the firm in which I'm a partner, we've got at least 16 huge investments there. Um, but we've tried to have a thesis about the growth that is this is stuff that people are gonna want, even if the GDP uh, growth slows, you're still gonna have an expanding pool of middle class and they will still want this. And I think that's what has been done there. Uh, now, whether that will get the spark of the absolute new, I just have to think they will, with one possible challenge, and that is, I think, a question whether a country can create the ecosystem in which that takes place if it doesn't allow the people in that ecosystem access to all information around the world. And if I were in China, I'd be very concerned that not allowing Google to search everything or not allowing this or that uh, newspaper or whatever in there uh, would ultimately actually put the country's innovators at a comparative disadvantage. It, so it really depends, I think. This is an information world. And if you don't have access to all the information for perhaps political or other reasons, does that hamper the ability to do what you were talking about? And that's an unanswered question. Uh, just as it has been unanswered about how long could, could China's economic model actually continue to grow, and we're starting to get the answer to that now. Keep in mind, by the way, when we talk about debt-to-GDP ratio, China has a 270-plus debt-to-GDP ratio uh, that has to be unwound at some point in time. That's a fundamental you can't outrun. Um, and again, you can say, well, look, again, that's financed by Chinese the same way we finance our deficit. Uh, but all that means is, again, you know, when the haircut's taken, once again, it's going to be domestic Chinese that are going to suffer. So these are the kinds of big fundamentals that ultimately uh, do have to be dealt with. And if s growth is slowing, then you have a hard time growing out of that. So that's yet another issue that's going to have to be confronted. Uh, I, I look to the uh, future of Asia with um, great optimism and a little bit of competitive fear. Um, and the measure I use is investments in education and research. The educational institutions in <coughs> Asia and China, like we even Japan, Singapore, uh, are moving forward at astonishing paces. So um, I think that we're going to see a tremendous amount of indigenous innovation um, happen in these countries. And uh, I, I just, yeah, you can't prevent it. It's going to be very, it is very exciting right now, and uh, it's just going to, the momentum's going to grow. Well, we're going to take two and last questions. Quickly, the country to watch, by the way, I think is India, uh, because it's the country that has this immense mm -hmm. potential, not yet realized, uh, but yet it's not at all certain that the Prime Minister Modi's got big ideas. They're very powerful. He did it in, as a, you know, running the state of Gujarat. Uh, I've sat with him recently and heard, you know, he's, he's got it. The question is whether he can get them through the bureaucracy and then indeed implement them in a, in a very challenging bureaucracy. If he can, that's the country. It's going to be bigger ultimately than, than China. Um, 
It's got tremendous demographics, but that also means it needs a tremendous amount of new jobs every year. So it would be a very interesting one. Sure and it does have some very high-level education, but, they haven't but it's their, limited. They, they haven't uh, developed a plan for uh, an expansion and uh, That's right. building their educational infrastructure the way China That's has. That's right. And yes. yeah. I mean, it's totally different in, yeah. in the whole system. Yeah. But if, it, if they can get it going, mm -hmm. it's going to be a very – because it has the potential. I will be reserved. We're taking two last questions. This, uh, the two ladies on the floor. Please, uh, short questions and short answers, please. I am Eunjung Lee, CEO of Harvard Robotics Startup, developing uh, internal pipeline repair robot. I am telling you from my own experience, and like Professor Hockfield mentioned, the industry is increasing their investment in development. In other words, if the technology readiness level is above three, between in NASA's technology readiness level between one and 10. So we cannot expect industry funding if we are below level three. Yeah. And also venture capitalists are enthusiastic only if, if you have robot prototype in your hands or in your lab or if you can generate revenue after at least two years. And government comes in and they have a variety of program only to provide half a million or one million in the beginning. But if we are developing game-changing or disruptive technology, it doesn't really take only half or one million. It can take easily 20 to 50 millions. So I'm really wondering, can Washington capitalize on America's revolutionary technology? And whom to talk to? Yeah. Thank you. Well Susan, said. Yes. You know, well said. You just uh, kind of you know, restated my biggest concern, which is, you know, are we investing in the kind of technologies yeah. that are going to provide the economic growth and jobs growth that we need? And I agree that there is a gap there, um, and we have not figured out how to solve it. Although there are a number of companies that are co-investing, so big companies are co-investing in small companies to help bring them along, and I think that's you know one uh, area for um, further development. Great hope that. Uh, Companies understand they can't do it in-house, but they can invest in a small company that's coming along in an industry that they're going to, you know, that that that, um, that they're going to want to incorporate. And, and there are programs uh, that the government supports that are gradually increasing in number. For I think they're called engineering centers of excellence, mm -hmm. and often linked together a couple or two or three different universities in a particular area. Uh, and are trying to promote those. There's intense competition to be the schools that get that. Uh, and that is actually proceeding also. So it, it's a surprising number of programs that are actually out there uh, that people haven't heard about unless they're actually in the business of trying to attract that funding. Last question, please. Hi, I'm Rosalie Waxman. I work in international marketing and sales for a healthcare startup in India. My question is actually about Mexico, though. Uh, in terms of achieving the goals for the North American decades, I'm sure that this has been addressed, but I was just curious to get the insights um, of the panel in terms of the level of corruption in the Mexican government and some of the issues they're dealing with that the U.S. and Canada does not deal with on a regular basis and how the North American countries could come together to achieve these goals with that obstacle. It's a phenomenal question, question, and Great I've question. spent a lot of time in Mexico. Actually, I think at one point I was down there five times in six months or something like that. And it was for a combination of Council on Foreign Relations Task Force on North America, 
um, the, an American Mexico CEO council, and then frankly the diligence on investments that we are considering, some of which are enormous. And the challenges are considerable, but again, what, you, what excited me about Mexico, and again, these years that I've been doing this, recently in particular, is that President Peña Nieto um, got into office, he got 16 constitutional reforms done in his first year through, and that takes, I think it's a two-third majority, and so he cobbled together a coalition to do that. Unprecedented in Mexican history. That's more than his three predecessors did in 18 years. He did it in one year. Next, the next year, he got all of the implementing legislation through. That only requires a majority. Uh, and now they're into the implementation. Tragically, of course, there have been really serious security issues that have cropped up uh, in the last year in particular. For example, the killing of the 50 or so student teachers uh, in a horrific case and a number of others. And these have highlighted the persistence of what really is a rule of law problem. It is not just corruption, it's not just uh, illegal narcotics industries, it's bigger than that. These are criminal cartels that will do anything they can. And by the way, they're empires, and that means they have to continue to expand, and that means they collide with other empires. But they're constantly seeking new sources of ill-gotten gains. And they'll do something even, you know, in the middle of a city, go up to someone with a pistol and say, let's go to the ATM and draw out all your money as a, as a new variation on the theme. Now, there is, among the reforms, there is reform to the legal system, to the judicial system that will change the way it works. Hopefully, we'll get a higher conviction rate than the 5% or whatever it is right now for uh, a number of different crimes. And we'll also reform some of the other organizations. The problem is that the task is so daunting when you look at it, and I looked at it in my last government position, to help the Mexican government. I mean, this is like taking on a massive insurgency, and you therefore need a counterinsurgency to do it, but it's hugely resource intensive. And I remember one time telling the previous president who was talking about, and he's one of your fellows, in fact, yep. rightly, talking about a real legacy program that they'd they trained and equipped and so forth, 25,000 federal police, huge accomplishment because you need federal level, not local, which gets too easily corrupted, intimidated, or killed. Uh, and said, that's really terrific. Um, by my calculation, all you need is another 225,000. So to give you some sense, again, of the challenges that are posed there. And um, the Peña Nieto government is trying to tackle these, but and they're not insurmountable, as, as you can see in Monterrey, which is a sort of a unique set of circumstances. Maybe in Juarez, yes, uh, I think uh, also in at least one other area, Tijuana. But it's a really, really serious issue that takes comprehensive efforts. It's not just a security problem, it's not just a judicial problem, it's not just a penitentiary problem. And you saw, you know, the drug kingpin actually burrows his way out of the, I mean, how can that possibly happen? Uh, and, but it's bigger than that. It's, it's education, it's basic services, it's opportunity and all the rest. And so it is it's very much akin to what's needed in a counterinsurgency. And that becomes so daunting that you almost draw back from it rather than just, and you realize, by the way, it gets much harder 
before it gets easier, as we saw actually in, in the Iraq surge, and we said it would, and it did, but then you do have the massive drop-off if you can come to grips with it. But that's, that's the challenge there, and enormous potential. It is a place where you definitely can do business, There's a, and safely, but you have to know the risks, and there are risk premiums on certain of the activities down there big time. So I'm sorry to bring this to an end, but uh, the, we're to the witching hour. What a pleasure it's been for all of us here to have General Petraeus uh, and his team producing this uh, great report. I would recommend to you read the whole report again. You can get it just at belfortcenter.org. And I thank the members of the advisory committee. I didn't see Vinky was over here, but the, the advisory hey, committee for How the project you? was Vinky, uh, Susan, and Megan. So we thank you for your work too. So thanks very much. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Well done. You did good.